So, as a culture, we seem to be fascinated with greatness, don't we? I'm soon to be in the market for a new car, so I've started to do my research. I know what I want, and I went online, or I know what style I want, and I went online to see what options are available. I know that I want a vehicle similar in size to the Ford Edge I have now. So I went online and looked up what are the best small SUVs and included my price range. I figured that I would leave it to others to do the research for me. These others include consumer reports, reviews, and sales trends. It is amazing what information is at our fingertips. Of course, we must be cautious, for there is much more false information online than accurate information. Also, I found that different sites had different cars listed as the best. This isn't surprising that there is conflicting information out there, for what is considered best to one person can be different from another person. The label of best is subjective. Even knowing this, I continue to put a lot of weight on what I found online. But we are fascinated by what others hold in high regard, what others think of as the best. We have come up with titles such as the greatest show on earth or the greatest generation. I like sports and one of my favorite terms is goat when referring to athletes. Now when I was growing up, if you were called a goat, it meant you were not that good. But now it stands for the greatest of all time, or G-O-A-T. For a long time, there was debate between whether Peyton Manning or Tom Brady was the greatest quarterback of all time. Now the big debate is who is the greatest time of all time, or the goat of basketball, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Of course, there's only one answer. That's Jordan. But we apply this label great or we also apply this, this label great to historical figures. We have leaders like Alfred the Great, Alexander the Great, Amenhotep the Great, and Catherine the Great. There's actually a lot more than that, but, but why do those particular leaders have this a title attached to their name? It's because of their accomplishments as leaders. Some of these accomplishments include the conquest of large areas of land, as was the case with Alexander the Great. Other accomplishments were more cultural, as was the case with Amenhotep and Catherine. Or maybe they united people together under one rule, as Alfred the Great had done. These titles are attached to their names as a showing of reverence for their accomplishments. These are the leaders that history remembers. When was the last time you read about Fred the Meh? I thought so. But we are fascinated with the best because we admire those labeled as the best and we want to be like the best. If we want the best things, and we want to be like the best, is there anything wrong with that? Well, yes and no. The problem is, how do we define what the best is? We not only see that attraction with greatness today, but even Jesus' disciples had arguments over which of them was the greatest. In fact, during the Last Supper, only hours away from Jesus being betrayed, arrested, tortured, and dying on the cross, some of the disciples were fighting over which of them was the greatest. Luke 22, starting in verse 24, says this, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, 
Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not, it is not the one that reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So it's amazing to think that they, the disciples, would ask this question now. Jesus had already mentioned earlier in the evening that he was going to be arrested and suffer very soon. Jesus could have, probably should have, been very annoyed with this question, for they had been with Jesus for years at this point and should have already known this answer. But instead, Jesus is calm and uses this as a teachable moment. Jesus responds to this question by first giving examples of how the world sees greatness. The kings of the Gentiles see greatness in their power over others, equating greatness with power and authority. In, the verse, in this verse, Jesus uses the term lordship. It is safe to say that the worldly view would say that the more people one has lordship over, the greater they are. This is very similar to how many people define greatness today, isn't it? But Jesus then states that this is not the case for his disciples. For those who follow Jesus, like you and me, greatness is measured by a different standard. We are not to think of the world as, as or we are not to think as the world does. We are to be set apart from the world. Jesus challenges his disciples and says, let the greatest among you become it as the youngest. This is an interesting statement. What is Jesus saying here? I've been called childish before, and believe me, this was not a compliment. But in the Jewish culture, during Jesus' time, and similar to today, children and young people have little claim or authority over others, and therefore do not try to impose their will or lordship over others. They understand their place around others. They are generally more humble than most others and show humility around others. When we humble ourselves before God and show humility, our hearts are in a better place to obey God's instruction. This is what Jesus is asking us to do. Humble our hearts so that we can be prepared to do what he is asking us to do in the next few verses. So in the next verse, verse 26, Jesus says that we are to lead as one who serves. This is a complete 180 from what cultural norms say about greatness. Culture says your greatness can be measured by how many servants you have and by how much others can serve those in power. Jesus says in this passage that greatness is measured by your service towards others. Greatness equals service. Jesus continues and asks, who is greater, one who reclines or is being served by others or the one who serves others? Jesus finishes this thought by saying that he, God the Son, the only man in the history of creation who deserves to be served, is actually here to serve. And he does serve us, we sinners who are far from deserving service, especially his. If we are truly to be more Christ-like, and we are instructed to do so, we must have a servant's heart as Jesus did. To do that, we look to the Gospels and use Jesus as a role model for a life of service. From Jesus' first miracle, turning water to wine, to Jesus' ultimate act of service, dying on the cross, 
Jesus was constantly serving others. Jesus taught. Jesus healed. Jesus performed miracles. All these actions served others. Because Christ served, then we should follow his, his example and serve others. So let's go back to what Jesus told his disciples during the Last Supper. After being asked who was the greatest, Jesus said that the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Jesus, of course, did not just say these words. He lived them. Jesus entered the, this world very humbly. From a humble family with no obvious expected claim, nor did he impose lordship over others. We are going to be jumping around the New Testament this morning, but in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, you can follow along up here, have this, in, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul starts out these verses by saying that we are to look at Jesus as an example for us to apply to our own thoughts and deeds. He says that Jesus was in the form of God, which is another way of saying that he was God. In other words, Jesus had the same power that we think of when we look to God the Father. Jesus also had the same authority we think of when we look at God the Father. But instead of using this power and authority that he inherently had, he emptied himself. Meaning he did not rely on or took advantage of these. Instead, began life as an ordinary Jewish boy in the likeness of men. 2 Corinthians 8-9 has a very similar statement. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He voluntarily took on this humble nature to be an example of humi humility that we are to follow. The New King James Version states that Jesus took the form of a bondservant. This term, at times, can refer to a person held in captivity against their will a term that we might be a little more familiar with today. But much more commonly, at the time of Jesus, this was a term for a person who voluntarily gave their lives to serve another person. We will cover, cover this a little bit more shortly. When we look to Jesus as an example of humility, one specific example of Jesus' humility stands out. A story we know so well, but it's the why that we will focus on today. Shortly before the disciples asked Jesus who the greatest disciple was, Jesus washed the feet of each of these disciples. Going to John 13, we read, When he had washed their feet and put on when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I, why what I had done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I am, or if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So here we see Jesus, God in the flesh, humbling himself before his students, 
Washing of feet was a custom that was performed by the lowliest servant. Jesus used this act as an example of humility in service towards others and showing, not just saying, that greatness in God's kingdom is measured by service. Jesus goes on telling his disciples that they are to wash one another's feet, for no task is too small for a humble servant of God. And when he tells his disciples this, we know that he is referring to us, his body of believers today. We have spent a lot of time to this point on humility. That's because humility is such an important characteristic when putting our hearts in the right place to serve others. It is what will motivate us to find value in others and give us desire to serve, not just simply going through the motions to serve because we're instructed to do so. Going back to Philippians chapter 2, Paul continues, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul states how God the Father reacts to Jesus humbling himself as a servant towards others. God holds Jesus in the highest regard, or highly exalted, as the passage says. God also says that Jesus' name is above all names. If God highly exalts Jesus because of his serving nature, then shouldn't we too also be servants, not just because we were told to do so, because God looks so favorably on us on this? This passage continues with why we are to do this. We have purpose on this earth. We are to be witnesses of Jesus in all that we say and do. When we serve others, we are serving Jesus. We are demonstrating our love for him. We are glorifying God, being a light for him, bringing others to him. We see that the early church embraced this role as servant and how critical it was as a means for bringing people closer to God. Look at how each of the authors identify themselves in the following letters in the New Testament. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, starts off with, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In the book of James, James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, Peter starts off with, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the book of Jude, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It was an honor for the early church to be labeled as bondservants for Christ. The early church recognized the joy that can come from service for it brought others to Christ. It was a calling, an identity for them. Like the early church, we too are called to serve others. When I say we are called to serve, who are we talking about? Pastors, elders, other church leaders? No, all who place their faith in Christ are called to serve. We are all called to be his ministers. Not one is excluded from this call to serve. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. While good works are not a means for salvation, we were all created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Serving others is an act of doing the good works mentioned here. 
Serving others is serving God. According to this passage, we are his workmanship, his treasure, his beloved children, ones he loved enough to send Jesus on our behalf so that we may be redeemed through his blood. Once you recognize your worth to God, as well as everyone else's worth to God, we may then strive to look for ways that we can serve others. So if we do understand that God holds those who serve in high regard, and we know that those who serve are following God's commands, using Jesus as an example, why can it be so difficult for us to serve others? Much of this starts with the fact that we must first humble ourselves in order to prepare our hearts to serve. While God holds people who serve others in high regard, culture holds people with power, status, and those who have a list of worldly accomplishments in high regard. Because of this, it goes against what we see all around us. We tend to hold back. Jesus saw this in his day, even among his disciples. We are like the disciples who, Jesus, who asked Jesus, who is the greatest, expecting to get a certain answer, the worldview answer, but being told an answer that we did not anticipate. In order for us to be able to ignore the worldly expectations and focus on what God is asking of us, we must empty ourselves as Jesus did. Jesus emptied himself when he humbled himself as a man. Jesus did not care about putting his worldly reputation on the line when, uh, if he associated with the wrong people. We too are to empty ourselves of all the things in our life that can get in our way um, of our willingness to serve. We are called upon to love others, serve others, even at times that are inconvenient for us. Perhaps you are going through your own struggles when you are in need of others to serve you. It is during these trying times that we may be less willing to even consider others' needs. But once we are able to empty ourselves, we are able to place our focus on God and the love that we are instructed to give. So going back to Philippians 2, we'll go back a few verses, starting in verse 1. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy as being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul begins this passage by, saying, by giving a list of things you experience when you empty yourself to Christ. He says you'll be encouraged, comforted with his love. You have the Holy Spirit to guide you. You will also have the ability to show true affection and sympathy towards one another. Once you are in this mindset, you feel these things and, you are, and we are united in Christ, set to live a servant's life as Christ had. Paul then says that we are not to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. This is important to consider when we set out to serve others. Our motivations for serving others should not be for recognition. When we, were, when we are called to serve others, we are to do so quietly. Our motivation should be to obey God, to please Him. Our deeds should bring glory to Him, not ourselves. 
Jesus warns us about selfish motivation in the book of Matthew. Chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrite does in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Did you notice that this warning does not consider how great the act of service is? You can devote a lot of blood, sweat, and tears serving your fellow man. But if your heart is in the wrong place, if you intentionally bring attention to your deeds, if you're looking for self-gain and not giving the full credit to God, then there will be no reward from God. You may receive your reward from other people when you bring attention to your actions. You may get praise from your fellow man. You may even get monetary rewards for your active service. But these rewards are short-lived and puts the focus on yourself, not God. If this is your motivation to serve others, you will not receive God's rewards. So when you do serve, do not draw any unnecessary attention to your active service. No sounding of trumpets, trumpets, as the passage says. Also, do not expect anything in return from those you are serving. No compensation. We do not want others to feel indebted to the one who had served them. This is expressing lordship over others, the opposite of humbling ourselves. Did you notice that when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he did not ask his disciples to then wash his feet? When we freely give service to others, we will receive God's reward according to God's will. Our motivation should be that we are obeying and pleasing God. When we serve others, we are serving God. To God, greatness is measured by our motives, what is on our hearts. Once your heart is in the right place, how can you become a more effective, effective servant? There are some strategies we can adopt to help us with this. One of the first steps is to be aware of those around you. You need to see people in the same lens that Jesus had. Unfortunately, recognizing the needs in others can be difficult at times. Oftentimes, we do not spend enough time with others in order to learn where others may need help. Spending an hour or so on Sunday mornings is a great way for hearing God's word as a body of believers. However, we do miss out discovering one it one another's needs if we are not interacting with one another. Having fellowship time and participating in Sunday studies is a good start for allowing people to open up with one another, building rapport and trust with one another. But if we are to be truly a family of families, our time together needs to go beyond the walls of this building. I've had the privilege of being part of different small groups over the years. These have provided numerous opportunities for getting to know people better. This then allows us to identify each other's needs on a personal level. In turn, we all get to better understand Jesus through our actions, again, on a personal level. When we abide with others, break bread with others, our witnessing becomes truly strong and steadfast. When we become effective for the gospel, 
when we put down roots and choose to have personal relationship with others. We see this relationship building in the early church in the book of Acts. The first believers were ostracized, lost jobs, lost homes, families were split. They were in need. They banded together, lived together in camps. While their situation seemed dire, they were there for each other and intimately knew, knew each other's need, needs and openly took on each other's burdens. Outsiders saw how they served each other and others were drawn to Christ. If you are not part of a small group, I encourage you to either join one or start one. These are great opportunities to fellowship as like-minded Christians, allowing us to build each other up, taking on each other's burdens, becoming more Christ-like. Another simple way that you may become more aware of one's needs is to start conversations. We know of people flocking to Jesus to be healed in the Gospels. There were also times where Jesus approached people, started conversations with them, and that person's needs came out through these conversations. Examples of this include the women at the well and the paralytic at Bethesda. Those in need may not always ask or make it know that, known that they are in need. This is why it is important to us be, to be vigilant, looking for ways that we can serve others. Once you have identified ways you can serve others, you must make yourself available to help them. Again, we look to Jesus as our example on how to do this. Jesus found time to help others, even when he was busy with other things. We see an example of this when Jesus was headed to Jerusalem for Passover. Time was limited, and he had a long way to go. As he was passing through Jericho, he was met by the tax collector Zacchaeus. Jesus not only took time to meet with Zacchaeus, but also requested to stay at his house for a while, spending time with him, getting to know him on a personal level. So now that we have identified some strategies to help us tune into the needs of others, we need to discuss who we are to serve. So let's go back to how Jesus responded to the disciples when, he asked them, when they asked him who was the greatest. Jesus said, For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, for I am among you as the one who serves. You'll notice that Jesus did not say that he was among us as the one who serves believers or the one who serves the Jews. No, Jesus simply stated that he was here to serve, implying that he was here to serve all. And since he did not hold back from serving anybody, you and I should not hold back from serving anybody who is in need. Scripture does record another time that Jesus' disciples were having an argument over who was the greatest. And this passage is more specific on who we are to serve. Mark says this in chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued which, with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus' response here is very similar to how he responded during the Last Supper, especially when he equates greatness with serving. 
But the difference here is that Jesus specifically says that we are to serve all people. We thought it could be difficult serving, um, putting ourselves out there to help fellow believers, reaching out to others who may not be solid in their faith, do not share the same faith, or may even criticize us for our faith, can take this difficulty to the next level. In order for us to even remotely have a heart that is willing to go this route, we absolutely have to empty ourselves and become humble. We must become the last to be the first. When we do put ourselves last, then we can begin to recognize the value of others regardless of what the worldview says of them. If that thought is not enough, try to keep this in perspective. Remember that Jesus died for all people. All people were made in the image of God and have value. I refer to Ephesians where Paul wrote that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We want as many people as possible to be counted as his treasured workmanship, and our service can point others in the direction of Jesus. This is our opportunity to show who Jesus is to those who do not know him or to those who don't obey him. This does not mean we have to accept their lifestyle, but we are to show empathy, walk in their shoes as Jesus had. Do not let concerns of having a poor worldly reputation or your own history with someone prevent you from serving. Think of Peter. Peter had to abandon his prejudice against the Gentiles when he visited Cornelius in his home. Jesus walked among sinners, even spending time in their homes like we saw with Zacchaeus. These were done in order to help others see the truth, to bring people to God. We know many people did not approve of this because they felt Jesus was aligning himself with a sinner, a tax collector. These fears did not stop Jesus or Peter from serving those in need, nor should they prevent you or me. We must also remember that Jesus washed the feet of all of his disciples. This includes the feet of Judas, who just a few hours later would betray him. Can you imagine getting on your knees, doing the work of the lowliest servant, washing the feet of one who personifies as the ultimate hypocrite? Jesus, God himself, did this. And he did it to be an example for us, to show us that nobody is unworthy of our service and no act of service is too low to give. When you understand that acts of service is God's calling for us, it may be easier to set aside fears of how the world may respond. When you realize this and submit your decision to the Holy Spirit, you'll be more willing to adjust your behavior and conform with Jesus' instruction for us to serve, to be ministers for Christ. Genuine service is a reflection of God's love and presence. Simply going through the motions is not enough. Others will notice when desires to serve are not genuine. Our thoughts and inner character must match our deeds. Once you are able to do that, others will notice. They will see Jesus through our deeds. What is keeping you from serving others? Are you dealing with your own issues? Wasn't Jesus dealing with all kinds of issues the night before his crucifixion when he washed his disciples' feet? Do you feel like you don't have enough time didn't Jesus make time for Zacchaeus when he was on his way to Jerusalem? Does your pride get in the way? Do you feel like you have nothing to offer? Maybe you tell yourself that you would serve God if only I had these talents. 
This is where being part of a church body is so important. We are each given skills, which are gifts from God. Since we all have different gifts, we can call upon different individuals within the church body to make sure all the needs within the church body and beyond are met. Every individual within the church body also has a different set of life experiences. We all at one time or another have felt pain, sorrow, failures, suffering. All of these life experiences make us unique and give each of us a special way to help connect with those who are going through similar issues. We can truly show compassion and empathy towards others who may be going through similar experiences. This is what makes a church body strong. Far too often, people expect the pastor to be the one to do all the serving within the church. One person alone has a limited skill set and limited life experiences and limited time. We must also look to the church body as a whole, tap into each other's gifts in order to be most effective. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We read, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all to everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we see this again in Romans chapter 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act with of mer- does acts of mercy to do so with cheerfulness. Both of these passages get, should give us confidence when we seek to serve others. We have, we have all received gifts or abilities, and these abilities are to be used to serve others. Both of these passages also state that each and every one of us possess different gifts. There's a couple reasons I included both of these passages here. The passage out of Corinthians emphasizes the fact that while each of us possess different gifts, they're all given by the same God, or given by the same Holy Spirit and empowered by the same God. The passage from Romans lists out different examples of gifts that are given. Some of the gifts listed here include teaching others, exhortation, which is another way of saying encouraging others in the ways of God, contributing financially, leading others, And these gifts will allow you to do these things with cheerfulness. Serving is also listed here. However, all of these things, whether it's teaching, exhortation, these are all acts of service. And in order to be successful servants, we need to understand the gifts that we're given. Focus on these gifts and use them to serve others. Once you understand that you have been equipped by God, you can gain confidence and you can now focus on what you have around you, around you, which is a place to serve and a people to serve. Once you begin to serve, make sure you are doing it to bring glory to God. Do not compare your service to how others are serving. Also, do not assume that others are not serving. Remember, we are to quietly serve so that the attention and glory be given to God, not the one serving. We also need to keep in mind that while we are instructed to serve others, our acts of service are not meant or are not a means of salvation. 
We know that salvation only comes through the faith in Jesus. Instead, we must remember that acts of service are one way that we are identified as Christians. We find one such list of how we are to act overall as Christians in Romans. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It is the last mark listed here that, we'll, that we are focusing on today. Contributing to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Jesus broke down all of the Old Testament commandments down to two commandments. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And secondly, we are to love our neighbor. If we are not serving others, we are not following God's instruction and not loving our neighbor, therefore breaking both of these commandments. So this morning, we looked at what God considered greatness to be. God's definition is not subjective, like our definition of, like our definition of greatness, and it never changes. In order for us to be the greatest, we must become the least, like a child, one without authority. To do this, we must humble ourselves. Once we are able to humble ourselves, we submit ourselves to God's will, and we focus on what he thinks of us, and not worry about what the world thinks of us. When we humble ourselves, we see value in others. We can be more tuned into their needs. When we humble ourselves, our hearts are ready to serve. We must remember to focus on God's rewards and not be motivated by earthly rewards. We are to serve quietly and we are to serve cheerfully. To be more effective, we need to know uh, on a personal level those around you, both within the church body and outside. This will help you identify where people are in need. I like what Jed said in his sermon a couple weeks ago when he went through the book of Obadiah. He said, you are your brother's keeper. When we do serve, we must look to Jesus as an example. We must let the Holy Spirit guide us. We must remember that no person is undeserving of our service and no act of service is too beneath us. Think of all the people that Jesus served. Lepers, blind men, children, Eventually, he outstretched his arms and died on the cross for all sinners. And this morning, we will be remembering 